What's up, Stitches? So what is back? It's here, it's happening. I've missed you all very much, even though I don't actually see your faces, and sometimes I feel like I'm speaking into the void, but I know I'm not because you are all wonderful and very kind. Anyway, hello. Oh, so nice to, uh, you know, theoretically see you all. I hope that if you're a So What listener who listens every week, that you had a really delightful three months. Is it three months? I think three months since season one ended in October. And I hope that if you're listening to this weeks or months or years later, you've also had a nice past three months. It's 2021, so new year, new us, or something like that. Hopefully, we'll see. But more importantly, new year, new needlework, am I right? What a time to be alive! And now that we're all here at the beginning of Season 2, let me tell you all about this season, what's on the docket. There'll be episodes about Indian embroidery, and Nalbinning, and Wiener Werkstatte, which I have to work to pronounce, and 20th century weaving, and hooked rugs, and hair work, and so much good stuff. And there'll be interviews with major museum curators, and contemporary artists, and scholars, and researchers, and I'm not going to reveal any names yet, but trust me when I say there are some big ones coming. Such fun, right? Oh, I'm just, I'm so excited to be back at it. And as always, images and sources will be posted every week on the So What Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at So What Podcast. But wait, there's more. The pod now has a website and a Patreon. The website has all the images and sources and the 10 most recent episodes, as well as a way to contact me with any thoughts or ideas or questions or concerns or whatever. The website is SoWhatPodcast.com, which is so legit, right? And the Patreon is so you can support the making of this podcast if you want it. You don't have to, obviously. But it's at Patreon.com slash SoWhatPodcast, obviously. And as you'll see, there are three ways to support, and supporting gives you exclusive access to stuff. And if you're not into or able to support the pod monetarily, that is obviously so fine. It's just there if you want to, because running a podcast is expensive, it turns out. So yes, SoWhatPodcast.com and Patreon. Patreon.com slash SoWhatPodcast. Ugh, so much exciting new stuff. What a joy. And now we should probably get into the actual needlework, right? Okay, here we go. So I was going to start off this season by talking about British orphan needlework, talking about the samplers and miniature clothing they made, but thought I didn't want to start this season off on a grim note because, let's be real, 2021 is already hitting us hard. So instead, this episode will be about the wonderfully teeny-tiny needlework of 17th-century British schoolgirls. And when I say teeny-tiny, I mean it. Quite a few surviving cabinets and caskets from the time entered museum collections or antique dealerships or wherever else with these tiny objects inside of them. And so I talked about cabinets and caskets in depth in an episode last season, but as a reminder, cabinets and caskets were boxes usually embroidered by girls at the end of their needlework work education and used to store precious objects like letters, writing supplies, gems, perfumes, and other treasured items. So the objects I'm talking about today had to fit into these boxes, which were basically the size of shoe boxes, and each of those embroidered boxes had many of the tiny objects within them, so what I'm saying is the objects are really small. 
But like, what objects will I be talking about today? What are the specifics? The umbrella term teeny tiny 17th century British needlework is a bit vague, right? Yeah, it is. So basically, I'll be taking you on a rousing tour, I hope, through a bunch of stuff. That is also painfully vague. But basically, I'll start off with the objects found in Martha Edlin's needlework casket, which I have mentioned on the pod before and which I will inevitably mention many more times. After that, I'll be looking at the trend of miniature needleworked renditions of objects like bellows, birds, and sheaves of wheat. British schoolgirls were making little needleworked versions of everything. It's honestly wild. Then I'll shift to objects that are still small but really focused on luxury and extravagance and needlessly embellishing or utilizing expensive or delicate materials to show off one's wealth and embroidery skills. The two types of objects I have in mind when I say that are embroidered nutmegs and embroidered eggs. Yes, I know you're thinking, what the heck? And truly, I am too. It's gonna get fun and just plain weird, which I am very excited for and I hope you are too. I'll end the episode in a brief foray into a type of object that's not embroidered, but that's similar to the other objects discussed in its truly tiny size and its connection to luxury and wealth, and that object is deerskin gloves stored in walnut shells. Yes, I know, more questions and confusion is happening right now, honestly same, but we'll get into it and it'll all make sense and it'll all lightly blow your mind too. Okay, now let's start with Martha Edlin's casket. As I said on episode 12 last season, Martha Edlin is really important because her entire suite of needlework survives and therefore tells us a lot about how wealthy girls learnt to stitch in the mid to late 17th century in England. Martha's stuff was passed down through the women in her family and was given to the V&A in the 1920s, and every object is a straight-up delight. Martha's casket is an absolute treasure trove. It's filled with a whole array of miniature objects she made or was given throughout her life, with most of them being from her youth. Here's a list of what was in her casket. A variety of miniature cooking tools, including several pots and kettles, a miniature purse, a metal thread bird, a pair of miniature gloves, two pincushions, one larger pillow, a needle case and bodkin, and a purse shaped like a pair of bellows. I'll be looking at the miniature gloves, bird, and bellows purse in this episode. So let's get looking at those gloves, which the V&A categorize as toy gloves. This is the description of those gloves on the V&A website. Quote, pair of gloves made as a needlework exercise. Each glove is made as a single piece rather than front and back joined. They are constructed from finely plaited silk and metal thread braid sewn edge to edge and then embroidered. This creates the effect of a cream glove with decorative details on the back outlined in twined pink and silver thread and the same pink and silver forming a cuff widening out and edged with loops and a bow. The reverse of each is plain as if the palm of the glove, end quote. The gloves are very, very cute. The V&A record states that the gloves were made circa 1670, when Martha was a girl working on the rest of her needlework suite, which I have no reason to disagree with. There's quite a lot of miniature stuff like this that has been found within boxes from this time period or associated with those boxes, so it seems like girls made these little itty-bitty objects alongside larger embroidery projects like samplers and mirror surrounds and cabinets. This is the only pair of miniature gloves made by a schoolgirl I know of, though. I think there are probably quite a few more, if not many more, made by girls being taught to stitch, but they're so small it makes sense they were lost over the course of centuries. 
In shape, they look a lot like the normal-scale gloves of the 17th century, with their long fingers and large gauntlets. I don't know why Martha made tiny gloves, but I really like thinking of all the possibilities. Maybe she was making a little bitty version of a pair of gloves she had, or maybe she was making gloves for a doll, or maybe she was dreaming of making human-sized gloves when she got better at stitching, or maybe she was mimicking a pair of gloves her dad owned, or maybe she just liked gloves and had extra materials and was bored and ended up making them. I have no idea. But I love, like really love, imagining Martha stitching her tiny gloves at school, maybe talking with her schoolmates or friends or whatever, and thinking about her future and what her life will be like, and everything else an 11-year-old girl would be thinking about 350 years ago. The richness of historic needlework is such that a teeny tiny object like this can lead to all of these big questions and vibrant narratives, and it's so cool, and it makes my heart sing, and I think it's such a joy. But that's probably enough of me waxing poetic about my love of historic miniature gloves, so let's go back to the objects in Martha's casket. While Martha's mini gloves are the only known examples of that sort of thing, two of the other miniature needleworked objects in her casket do have other contemporaneous examples. Those things are the miniature bird and the bellows purse. Okay, let's go to the bird first. The bird's exterior is made entirely out of a loose kind of metal ribbon, I think, rather than metal thread, and it has little wire legs and feet covered in metal ribbon, too. The bird has a curved neck and black bead eyes, and it has scalloped feathers and a tail all made of fabric covered in that same metal ribbon. The bird doesn't seem to have a purpose beyond being decorative. It doesn't seem to be a pincushion or pouch or anything like that. Martha Edlin's bird is not the only example of a teeny tiny 17th century bird made by a schoolgirl. There are examples at the National Museum of Scotland and the Burrell Collection too, and I'm sure there are many others out there. The one in the National Museum of Scotland doesn't have any images online, but I've seen it in real life and it's a similar size to the Edlin example and has a long body and a beak made of wire and individual needleworked feathers in yellow, blue, and red. It also looks like it doesn't have a purpose beyond decoration. But the Burrell Collection bird does have a purpose. That one is, according to the museum record, a thimble case, and it's made entirely out of detached buttonhole stitches. The bird has a green body with a yellow and pink head, and little wire legs covered in brown thread, and feathers in green and blue and red. The feathers can be pulled kind of up and away to reveal a pouch made of dark green silk. It's the only embroidered bird from the period I know of that has a purpose, and its purpose makes sense. Two of these birds are found within schoolgirl caskets and cabinets, so it makes sense that these girls were making needlework tools and accessories as they were developing their needlework skills. But why birds? I don't know at all, to be honest. I think it's probably the same question to ask with those frog pouches I talked about in an episode last season. Maybe there was a larger reason, a reason why girls chose to depict birds instead of other animals, or maybe it was just random and birds had good shapes to model and birds were everywhere so they were easy to mimic and wire and thread. I don't know. All I know is that these birds are tiny delights and very much fall into the category of really small 17th century needleworked objects. The last thing from Martha Edlin's casket I want to talk about is her miniature bellows purse. This is a really itty-bitty purse, 8.2 centimeters by 4.2 centimeters, which is 3.23 inches by 1.65 inches. It's made entirely out of needlework, with its center made out of detached buttonhole stitch, and it also has spangles and little beads. 
The purse literally looks like a pair of bellows, which is a device that emits air when squeezed together by its two handles. You would know what I'm talking about, so like, go look at a picture of bellows. Bellows are like the things you use to blow air into a fire. Anyway, these bellow-shaped purses from the 17th century are pretty common. There are examples at the Met and V&A and a few other places too. Some of the surviving examples were found within cabinets and caskets, so it's likely that these two were schoolgirl projects. I have a lot of thoughts on these bellows, so here's a Sparknotes version. I think maybe these objects were sweet bags, which held scents and were used as pomanders, which could be held against the nose to provide relief from the stinky, stinky 17th century. I think these bellows purses, like full-size bellows, offer their user literal fresh air. Symbolic and literal, and honestly a delight all around. So the question I have to ask here after going through some of the Martha Edlin objects is this. What was up with the love of of miniature needleworked goods in the 17th century. Well, clearly there's a universal human love for the teeny tiny. We love doll houses and really crazy small chihuahuas and babies and a wide variety of other minuscule stuff. So I think for these 17th century girls, there was that, that love of the small and the equivalent of the small to the cute, but I think it's more than that too. I think miniature stuff allowed girls to practice and subsequently show off their needlework dexterity. They could show off how their embroidery talent allowed them to make three-dimensional forms out of thread, creating smaller versions of objects they saw every day. And of course, these miniature objects were convenient because they could be stored within the girls' cabinets and caskets. They allowed girls to show off and use and be proud not only of these needleworked boxes, but also the objects within them. And gloves, birds, and bellows are not the only miniature objects made by schoolgirls that have been found in cabinets and caskets. There are miniature stalks of wheat, and ears of corn, and snakes, and stags, and dogs, and flowers out there too. Miniature delights are honestly everywhere all thanks to 17th century British schoolgirls. But there are many other teeny objects from this time period and group of makers I want to discuss. These next objects are very small, yes, it's true, but really what brings them all together is their focus on luxury. These objects mix together needlework skill and novelty and materials that were either very expensive or just like totally wild and unnecessary to cover in embroidery. The two types of objects I'm talking about here are embroidered nutmegs and embroidered eggs. Yes, weird, and yes, intriguing. So, embroidered nutmegs. What the heck am I talking about? Honestly, great question. So, in the 17th century, amongst really quite fancy schoolgirls, there seemed to be a trend for covering nutmegs with embroidery. Several of these nutmegs are held in private collections, and the only one in a museum that I know of is one in a casket in the National Museum of Scotland. Here's why embroidering nutmegs is crazy beyond the fact that, like, why are you embroidering a seed? It's because nutmegs were so crazy expensive in the 17th century, like, so expensive. Nutmeg was literally worth more than its weight in gold. In the Banda Islands in Indonesia, where nutmeg came from, 10 pounds of nutmeg cost one English penny. But when they got to London, that same amount would cost two pounds, ten shillings, which is a wait for it, 68,000% markup. Take that in. 68,000%. What? And how? And why? I have so many questions. And if that's not enough, I have another, more shocking statistic for you. Each time a nutmeg changed hands on its voyage back to Europe, its value rose 100%. 
That is crazy town. But why was nutmeg so expensive anyway? Well, at the beginning of the 17th century, nutmeg began to be considered a cure for the plague. It went from not being in demand in Europe at all to being the hottest commodity. And on top of that, it was the golden age of the early modern spice trade. The desire for nutmeg was so intense that Portugal, England, and the Netherlands battled for control of the Banda Islands, which was the only source of commercial nutmeg until 1770. The island of Rhun, I think it's pronounced R-H-U-N, one of the most fought-over islands, became the first English overseas colony, and eventually all the battling countries calmed down in 1667 when the English traded control of Rhun for control of Manhattan Island. Like New York City, Manhattan Island. That is crazy. How wild is that? Colonization is so, so deeply cursed and bad, and I, for one, had no idea nutmeg was so integral to the whole thing. This is all to say that nutmegs were super expensive in the 1600s, so the idea of embroidering them is straight-up bananas. You have to pay 68,000% more and you're not even using it? You're covering it with needlework? Embroidering a nutmeg is the ultimate like, yes, hello, I am wealthy enough to afford this crazy expensive thing, and I'm so wealthy I can actually afford more than one, so I can use one to actually use as a spice, but I have an extra one, so I'll just use the extra one to embroider on. There's a casket from this time in Whitney Antiques right now whose maker included and embroidered four nutmegs. Four nutmegs. What is happening? So, uh, yeah, I don't really know what to say all about that other than nutmeg decorating is the ultimate rich schoolgirl learning how to stitch and just reveling in her wealth object. Like I said earlier, one such example is in the National Museum of Scotland and was found within a casket that also held a miniature needlework deer, dog, snake, and flowers, as well as pincushions and purses and other bits. The nutmeg is covered in what I think is wire wrapped in silk thread. There are circles of green and blue and the top and bottom are pink. Attached to it is a looped cord probably used to hang the nutmeg around one's wrist. Also attached is a little slip of fabric with a verse written on it that unfortunately doesn't tell us anything about the maker or her little nutmeg. It's very similar to the embroidered nutmegs in the casket at Whitney Antiques, so clearly these were a schoolgirl craft. Super rich girls were making these in schools, probably. Embroidered nutmegs are the preeminent example of mixing together wealth, luxury, and the deep need to show off one's needlework skill by any means possible. The last super crazy type of miniature needleworked object made by 17th century English schoolgirls is also mind-blowing, and there's only one surviving example I know of this thing, and when I say what it is, that will make sense. What I'm talking about here is an embroidered egg. Yes, an egg, a regular egg, or more specifically, an eggshell. There is no actual yolk and not yolk part in it. It is just straight up eggshell. This is an eggshell that has been literally embroidered and has survived something like 350 years. And we can tell that the egg is from the 17th century and from 17th century England specifically based on the type of embroidery on it. The egg was sold at Hansen's Auctioneers recently and is now at Whitney Antiques. The entire eggshell is covered in floral embroidery and there are no cracks in the eggshell itself. So, uh, like, how did this person 350 years ago embroider an egg? How did they get the actual egg out? Great questions that I keep asking and can't get answers to because it's the only object of its kind that's known. I'm figuring that the embroiderer carefully created small holes where her stitches would go, but my question is how do you turn your needle and fit into those holes in an extremely delicate, not at all pliable material? 
Because we know next to nothing about this embroidered egg, it's impossible to say whether or not it was made by a schoolgirl. What is clear, though, is that embroidering an egg was a really intense, like, I am a super skilled needleworker power move. There's no point to it. It's entirely decorative. And I think it's that pointlessness that says a lot about the egg's embroiderer. She was wealthy enough to have the leisure time to embroider an egg and had excess materials to do it. And this was also probably a really good way to show off her feminine virtues like grace and delicacy. Not only could she stitch, she could stitch on this thing that could break at any second. Now, you might be asking, why are you including this weird egg in an episode about teeny tiny needleworked objects made by schoolgirls if you don't know if this thing was made by a schoolgirl? Well, I'm including the egg because a lot of ideas around this egg are the same as those that surround the tiny gloves and the bellows purses and the embroidered nutmegs. These objects were ways to show off not only a girl or woman's embroidery skills, but also her good breeding, her wealth, and her delicate touch. These objects tell us not only about their makers, but also the type of ideal femininity these girls and women had to strive to achieve. And now, before I conclude the episode, I want to briefly mention an object that is not needleworked or embroidered in any way, but that is another 17th century schoolgirl object whose charm and wonder lie in its teeny tininess. That object is the pair of kid leather gloves that were stored within a walnut shell. Can you imagine? Like literally you are sticking a pair of gloves into an absolutely minuscule nutshell. Well, this is another example of luxury within the world of some of England's richest schoolgirls. Their gloves were soft and supple enough that they could fold into the tiniest of spaces. That's very impressive to anyone who would see that. There's a wonder that comes with gloves that fine. And there's also a very acute sense of control that's present in this glove and walnut shell pairing, as there is in a lot of the objects I talked about today. These girls are asserting control over nature with their objects. They're stuffing these gloves made from lamb or goats into this natural hollowed-out shell. They're able to take this one aspect of nature and stuff it into another, and therefore have control over both. So tied in with the wonder that comes with marveling at these tiny objects made and decorated by these preteen girls is this sense of control. These girls not only have control over their needles, but control over nature, too. There's a lot that can be said about early modern ideas about the relationship between humans and nature, but that's not very needleworky, so I'll end that tangent by saying control is integral to these needleworking girls. They're learning to control their stitching and nature, yes, but also they're also being taught to control their tempers and emotions and to be the fair, gentle ladies much of 17th century society wants them to be, or wanted them to be, because that was a while ago now. So clearly, needlework can tell us a lot about these girls and the world in which they lived, but you knew that already. I love these little weird teeny tiny joyful objects and I hope you do too. One of the many reasons why I adore these little itty bitty schoolgirl pieces is that in addition to working this stuff to gain needlework skills, they also work this stuff to beautify their world. And I really like that. I like that for girls who are wealthy enough to be educated at school and to afford those bright silk threads and spangles and beads, they made their pincushions and their purses and their random tchotchke stuff with so much care and precision and detail. Nothing is plain or boring. It's all covered with color and sparkle. And I think that in these continued weird times, it's nice to find joy and light in the literal small stuff. And I feel really lucky that I can do that and take you all on that journey with me, so thanks! 
So on that note, thank you for listening, and thanks for being here for the start of So What Season 2. Remember to check out the website and the Patreon if you're so inclined, and be sure to tell your friends about the pod if you want to, and like and rate and review and subscribe and all that good stuff if you want to as well. There's no pressure, but if you want to, that would be cool. I appreciate all of you. Now go out and stitch some stories and maybe embroider an egg if you want to. I will support all of your embroidered egg endeavors. Bye! Thank you.